In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. When we went through the adoption process uh, with our daughter, uh, one of the terms that I was completely unfamiliar with, that I was introduced to, is the term conspicuous family. No idea what that meant, but we had to do like little classes, read little articles on what a conspicuous family is. It's a, it's a term in, in foster care, adoption circles, for a family that does not pass in society as biologically related. You see them and it's obvious that something has happened here outside of, of biology. A conspicuous family. Yeah, most frequently, it's, it's because of an adoption or a, uh, a foster care situation that involves a, a different race than the, than the parents and, and the family. The family of God, by design, is a conspicuous family. There is no biological, sometimes not political, sometimes not experiential. In fact, most of the time, many of the things that we identify ourselves by are different and diverse within the family of God. It's a conspicuous family by design. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship at the throne. That's the promise. And this has been true from the beginning. That's where the Apostle Paul's headed today. It's been true since the promise of Abraham. And it's the promises of God that make the reality possible that there can, through faith, by grace and His promises, be this family. Diverse people from a thousand different places and a thousand different generations that will be one in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through, through 29, take us all the way back to Abraham and to God's covenant promise to him. And it makes a case, these verses are going to make a case for us today, that God's family has always been a family of promise. Not a family based on DNA, not a family by, of common works and effort and accomplishment, but a family of faith in the promises of God. The common denominator of all God's family members is not DNA with Abraham, but instead shared faith. With Abraham. So, what we'll see today, my prayer, is that the thread of unity within the diverse family of God has always been faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus. For the family of God, the common thread that ties us together is a crimson one the blood of our Savior Jesus and faith in his promises through which we are brought into the family. So, Father, today, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the main arguments of Galatians chapter 3, and we are in a series through the book of Galatians, which is a letter to at least four, maybe more churches in an area that at the time when Paul was ministering was called Galatia. 
And so he had been there in person, ministered to them, shared the gospel with them. They now are beginning to fade away from their faith in Jesus. And he writes this letter in response to that. And in chapter 3, he has made the case, as he has since chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit and justification comes through faith in Jesus. And last week he gave an example, and it was their own personal experience in the church of Galatia. That was verses 1 through 14. Today, he goes all the way back to Abraham. He gives a historical example. But he starts with an overarching legal understanding that his people in particular would have, but we won't have much trouble grasping. When he says, to give a human examples, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now think about a last will and testament. That's probably the best uh, way of understanding this. If you were to, and if you haven't, especially parents, you should do that, write a will, get that thing registered so that your assets and possessions, right, if something happens to you, then legally what happens to them is bound by that last will and testament. Now in our culture, uh, we can write that will, and then our kids can upset us, and we can go back and write them out of the will, right? And we can change it. But at some point, it becomes unchangeable regardless. So on, upon death, that will is no longer able to be changed. It can't be added to, subtracted from, tweaked in any way. It is final. What's interesting in both Greek culture, which would have influenced the churches of Galatia, and in Jewish, Jewish culture, which would have influenced Paul's writing of this letter, once you wrote the will and got stamped and sealed and on file, you could not change it. It was done. So if you knew your parents had, had written your will, then you could just treat them however you want after that, right? And <laughs> They're not going to write you out. No, you could not change it. It was set in stone for forever. But we get the gist of what he is saying. He's setting us up for this story of Abraham where God is going to make a covenant with him and his argument is going to be once that promise is made, nothing, not even the law of Moses, can nullify, change, tweak, move around the promise of God. And so that's exactly where he goes. Galatians 3.16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well, what promises? Um, that's an important question to ask. If you're familiar with the story, this, this won't be new to you. But if you go all the way back to when Abram, at the time, his name gets changed to Abraham, comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, God calls him out. He says, leave where you're at and go to a place that I will show you. And he says, I will bless you towards the end of that verse. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He comes back and he expands on this promise in chapter 15. If you remember, Abraham's like pushing 100, and his wife Sarah's pushing 90, and they don't have any kids yet. Now, you know the bio biological difficulties Associated with that, it's going to take a miracle. And so God comes to Abraham and says, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be great. And Abraham says, Remember that promise you made? That all the families of the world will be blessed 
for, through me, that you would make a great nation out of me? He says, problem. O Lord, uh, o Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? He says he has an heir, but it's just a servant in the home. And the Lord says to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are capable, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He said, you're uh, almost 100. Your wife is almost 90. You don't have any babies yet, but your generations, your family is going to outnumber the stars in the sky. Okay. Not a single one of us would have believed it, but Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness, his faith in the promises of God. Now, it gets weird real quick, because God has him sacrifice some animals. He kind of cuts them in half, pretty morbid, right? It's like a Saul movie almost. And then an angel comes, invisibly. God himself, many say, came, and all you see is this, uh, you know, strangely, this, uh, here it is. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed through these pieces. This is Jesus, or God himself, ratifying, sealing the promise. And this all happens before Moses exists, before the law or the Ten Commandments are ever spoken. God makes a covenant promise with Abraham to establish him. He, he, he goes again, we won't read it, but in, in chapter 17, he renews the promise again. And so, Paul is setting up his argument. Once the covenant's delivered, once the promise is made, nothing can change it. Not the law of Moses or anything can change the promise. But Paul sees something else here too that he wants the church of Galatia to see. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Listen to what he does. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, plural, but referring to one offspring who is Christ. Paul looks at the promise to Abraham and he sees Jesus. Now, in the Hebrew language, that word offspring is a collective word, which means, quite simply, it can refer to an individual or it can refer to a group. It's used in both ways, and Paul himself uses it in, in both ways. Paul knew full well that offspring was a collective noun. In fact, he uses the word that way several times including later in this very chapter, Galatians 3.29. He also knew that the offspring God promised to Abraham would be as numerous as the sand and the stars, but Paul wanted to explain that God's covenant promises referred to someone in particular. Paul's not saying that this promise isn't for Isaac, the son to come, this isn't for the generations of Abraham to come, but that it's primarily about Jesus. In Galatians 3.16, he is not so much making an argument based on Old Testament grammar. He's not like being a word guy and trying to get nitpicky here. He is explaining what the Old Testament really means. The promise of the offspring referred first of all to Abraham's son Isaac. Paul knew that. Ultimately, it referred to all God's children. Paul knew that, but especially to God's son Jesus Christ. 
The Old Testament is about Jesus. The law of Moses is about Jesus. The covenant promises to Abraham are about Jesus. He is all through it. Don't miss it. Simply put, here's the argument. This is what I mean, he says. The law, which came 430 years after these promises to Abraham does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, if the promises of God for his people come by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Simply put, the law of Moses does not replace the promises to Abraham or even change them in any way. It was faith in the promises of God that counted Abraham righteous. And it is still faith in the promises of God that make one righteous. In particular, the promise that he would send a Messiah. Abraham looked into the future and believed. We look back at the cross and we believe and that faith is righteousness. Counted to us as righteousness. Not the law, not the legal demands of the law. So what's the point of the law then? And Paul assumed that you would ask this question. He, he actually presumes that you might have two questions and he addresses them rapidly. Why then the law, he says in verse 19. And then he answers immediately, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now that's complex, but there's a simple explanation for all of that. The Judaizers, I'll take the second half of those verses first. The Judaizers, those who had come in and said, you need circumcision, diet, um, you need to honor the Sabbath in this specific way if you're going to be in Christ were undermining the truth of the gospel. They were saying the gospel comes by faith and law. And, and, and Paul's pushing back against them. But one of the arguments they would make is they'd say, hey, remember when the law was delivered? It was delivered by the hands of angels. How special is that? Remember the angels bring the law to Moses and then Moses brings the law to the people. And Paul says, actually, it's the opposite. That doesn't make it special, Right? When, when God brought the promise to Abraham, he brought it to him directly firsthand. When the law came to the people, it came thirdhand, through angels and then through Moses. That speaks to the distance between us and God. That because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness as humanity, there is a distant separation between us and and God. There's not some extra weight brought about by, by the fact that angels are involved. And so he nullifies that point to get to his more specific point that the law came, it was added because of transgressions. Now I told you this was a bit of a, a deep dive, but just bear with me. The law itself, and when I say the law, I'm talking about in particular the first five books of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the laws and rules that God gave to his people, numerous, all those books of the Bible that if you ever do a year-long Bible reading plan, you get stuck in and you want to fall asleep while you're reading them, those 
books, those rules, those laws were given not to save, but to show us our need of a Savior. When he says that the law was given for transgressions, what he means is so that our sin would be revealed to us. So that we would see the holiness of God represented in the perfection of the law, and we would see how far short we come of that sin. And so he gives the law because of transgressions to reveal our transgressions. But you also see um, in verse 21 another question. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it working against the promises of God? If the promises of God, right? Remember, God promises Abraham. By faith, in my future, in the future Messiah, you are made righteous. That's the promise. By faith, righteousness. But now the law comes along, and it just shows how sinful we are. Is it working against the promises? And he says, absolutely not. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's making the same point, just in a different way. You might think the law is contrary to the promise if you don't know what the law is for. If you think the law was to make people righteous and it couldn't do it, then you'd be like, man, well, what a miss, what a whiff. But that's not why it came. It came to be uh, a a revealing of our sinfulness. So no, the law was given to reveal transgressions And then he goes further, verse 22, but the scriptures, the Old Testament, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He keeps on with the imprisoned talk. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. Again, I hope this doesn't feel like a class, but but this is... What he's doing, he's teaching. He's saying, I want you to know why the law existed. Because if you you don't understand why God gave the law to Moses, then you're not going to understand what true faith is. You're not going to understand what it means to receive the promises of God through faith. And so here, he says there's another thing the law did. It imprisoned us. But hear me, it didn't imprison us, right, like an average person's imprisoned, it imprisoned us in the way that someone who is in danger is imprisoned, right? You ever seen some of those mob movies where someone's actually begging to be put in prison because they don't want to be destroyed by someone else? Maybe that happens in mob movies, maybe not. Maybe I'm making that up, but they're they're begging to be imprisoned. There are also people who are confined to spaces because they're a danger to themselves. So yes, freedom is sacrificed, but it actually can save their life? That's what Paul means. That the law imprisoned us in a way that protected us from ourselves and from the views of this world that would say, you can make yourself righteous in this way. You can find lasting joy and hope in these places. And the law says, no, you will only find it in God. And then the law says you can't possibly live up to the standard, and so it leaves us longing for a Savior, for the Messiah. 
That's the use. And in that way, it is like a guardian to those who, who are under it. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law serves as a protection. So just to sum up, the law was temporary in the sense that it came after the promise. It was there in particular to make us make the people of God long and yearn for, for Jesus. That was the main role of it, was between the, the delivery of it to Moses and the time when it would be when it would be fulfilled in Christ. It revealed sinfulness and God's holiness. It protected us from ourselves and it protected us from the false narratives of the world. But that's all it could do and that's all it was designed to do. It couldn't save. Only faith in the promises of God could save. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We could, and I'm being gracious to all of us, we could talk about this for another 25 minutes and maybe start to wrap our brains around it. Maybe start to have it be more clear to us. And if you do have deeper questions about it, I would love to address them. But let this quote kind of sum up the purpose of the law. Not until the law had bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. That's the point of the law, to lead us to Jesus. It's like an on-ramp onto the gospel interstate. The law's value is not in its saving, but in our in its driving us to the to the Satan. Here's where we're at in the book of Galatians. He's about to crescendo this with what his main point is, what he's been getting at. It's the part I'm the most excited about, and it's actually not a long part, so don't worry. Chapters one and two, the truth of the gospel is is proclaimed. There's only one true gospel. Chapters 5 and 6 is how that gospel transforms the people of God. We're transformed by the Spirit into Christ's likeness. But here in the middle, chapters 3 and 4, is how the, the gospel creates a diverse family of people, a conspicuous family of people by grace through faith. And that's where Paul gets to now. He says, for Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Remember his audience in Galatia, super diverse. Jews, uh, Christians, uh, races, ethnicities all over the place. All of you. Not just those of Jewish DNA. Descendants of Abraham are determined not through biology, but through Christology, what they do with Jesus the Christ. And the implications of this are, are massive. And I want us to own them, so, so watch what Paul does. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is a verse about identity. 
He's saying if you are in Christ, then you are part of this diverse family. If you are in Christ, then the promises of Abraham belong to you. But you need assurance of your faith. So he points to one of those assurances. Baptism. He points to the sacred sacrament, the very first and primary testament of faith. Our baptism testifies in a very peculiar, unique, specific, mysterious way to the real, genuine faith that is inside of us. Let me say it this way. Baptism doesn't save you, but faith without baptism is about as rare as a thief on a Roman cross next to Jesus getting to enter into paradise. It happens... It's not the norm. Why? Not because baptism saves, but because baptism is this very sacred sacrament that testifies to the reality of our faith. And in this mysterious way, we actually enter into that faith through baptism. Not justified by it, but it butts right up against it. Right? Sometimes the lines between baptism and justification get blurred because the Scripture presents them so closely tied together. So when you think about your baptism, it testifies like nothing else to your faith in Jesus. So Paul says that's where you can look to find your identity. Remember your baptism, which brings us to what he's building towards. That in Christ, those of us who have put on Christ... By faith, by grace, in Jesus, who have been baptized into the family of God, can look to our baptism and say, I am in Christ, and in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying these things are irrelevant, by the way. These things matter. Gender matters. Ethnicity matters. Your position, rich, poor, slave, free, that, that matters, but they are inferior identifiers. Those things in the family of God do not get to be primary identifiers. They just don't. Only one thing does. Are you in that is a primary identifier. And not only that, but they are irrelevant dividers. They don't count as worthy of division. These exterior things about us pale in comparison to what Christ has done. Our individual stories, experiences, cultures, personalities, they do testify to who we are in very important ways. It's not diminished. But what is built up as far more important is what Jesus did on the cross. All of our stories, our personalities, our experiences, these things we identify ourselves sound like a whisper in comparison to the shout of the cross. That in Christ we are family regardless of all of these things. And none of those things, ethnicity or, or position or class or gender, none of it can divide us in this supernatural community 
makes the visible God visible. He finishes with verse 29. And if you're Christ, that's what he's been driving at, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Will you please see this with me today? Man, I want to see it in my heart. I want to own it in my soul. Jews and Gentiles inherit all that is God's through Jesus. Hear me. Rednecks and Wall Street brokers inherit all that is God's through Christ. Blue lines and black lives inherit all that is God's in Christ. The masked and the unmasked will inherit all that is God's in Christ. These are not things to be divided over. That's the picture of the future. You could go on and on with all the list of things that we divide over in our culture. And God says... The the beauty of Jesus is that you will link arms with people who differ with you in a hundred different ways if you share true faith in Jesus. So let me pry into my own heart and into yours. Is your understanding of the gospel clear enough to see the future of a Taliban soldier standing arm in arm with an Afghan woman who had her husband murdered by that very man because he was a Christian. Because if it has room for Paul, it has to have room for that scenario too. Because Paul stood over the dead bodies of Christians. Christians who had wives and kids and families who would suffer pain unbearable as a result of his actions, but in Christ reconciled to God. Is your gospel that big? That's tough. That's it. God has graciously saved us. Will he, may he give us eyes to see the future of us standing before the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb next to people who don't look like us or vote like us or think like us or advocate for the same things we advocate for, people who prioritize different things than we do. Listen, there are people who will inherit the promise who my small mind deem annoying, toxic, frustrating. They'll be there. Arm in arm singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And the beauty is we can live that reality today. And in living that reality today, we make the invisible God visible to the world. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of grace and faith in Jesus. The same faith as our father, Abraham, to whom we are offspring in Christ. You remember what happened, Isaac? comes along, God keeps the promise. And then like, not too long later, God has a very interesting request. He says, I want you to take Isaac. And he he rubs it in Abraham's face when he says it. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac. In case you're, you know, 
going to think that maybe I meant this other Eliezer guy that you was supposed to be your inheritance. No, I mean Isaac, your only flesh and blood son. And I want you to take him to a mountain I'm going I'm to point you to. And I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham packs it up and goes. The geography is interesting. Because the mountain he ends up on, Mount Moriah, sits just outside of where Jerusalem will be. Outside the city, a mountain, a sacrifice. And there on that mountain, he lifts up the knife, and and in that moment, the angel calls out, Stop! Don't kill your son! I now know what I needed to know, which God already knew, but this test of faith had proven to Abraham that his heart belonged to God. God was after his heart. He wasn't after his legalistic obedience or he wouldn't have stopped the exercise short. He would have had him carry through. But because his heart, he had his heart. He believed God's promise that even if his son was dead, he'd be raised back to life or God's going to come up with another way to keep his promise of nations being blessed through him. And he fears God and he believes God. And in that place, God provides a ram. Remember a substitute. Fast forward 1,800 years, right? The Lamb of God, Jesus, in that same geographic area, will walk out of that city into that same exact mountain range, you know, climb a hill with a cross on his back. So he delivered him over to be crucified, Pilate did. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Same mountain range, same general place, a mountain. And they crucified him. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The offspring of Abraham, singular, Jesus, fulfilled promise and made it possible for you to be brought into the promise. You can be children of God through faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus today if you're not a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That simple. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'd love to answer them. Children of God, you are children of the promise. And your future is incredibly bright. The promises are true and they are unstoppable. So let that be your confidence today. Cling to the gospel, which means you can let go of doubt. It's not easy. I'm not just saying that flippantly. Man, it's hard to let go of doubt. You can let go of fear. You can let go of anxiety. You can let go of bitterness. You can let go of anger. You can let go of your your striving to, to make everything good on your own. You can let go of all those things rest clinging to the gospel and two the family of God is is conspicuous so as we cling to faith in the promises of God might we then move and pursue supernatural community this is the part that's harder because that means that maybe there's people even in this room that you share a brotherhood and a sisterhood within Christ that rub you the wrong way, they annoy you, they frustrate you. Some of y'all looking at your wives and husbands, I get it. 
I love it. We move not away from the people that make us uncomfortable, but we move towards them. Now, I'm not talking about like literally dangerous people. There are relationships psychologically, spiritually, that you have every right to avoid. But that's not what most of us need to hear today. What most of us need to hear today is there are places where we can be more uncomfortable than we are. Where we can move towards people, engage them in community and love and service, and in doing so make the invisible God visible. Because everybody looks and says, those people have nothing in common. Why, why are they even serving side by side? It doesn't make sense except for Jesus. That's it. The thread of unity within the diverse family of God has always been faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus. And this conspicuous makeup of his family testifies to the supernatural power gospel so might we move towards others in community groups when you get ready to join your community group maybe you're in a season where you need a little bit of rest so you get with some people that you have some affinity with okay maybe God's calling you to get in a group with some people that make you uncomfortable some people that annoy you so that the invisible God can be made visible and everybody's going to be thinking oh, did they join that group because they're annoying by me <laughs> My group numbers just went through the roof. <laughs> okay, I guess i got to be with that guy. Make the invisible God visible. Father, thank you so much. You're so gracious and kind to us. It's, un, it's actually unfathomable because nobody is more polar opposite to me than, than you. Nobody is, it was more worthy of being left by the side of the road than me. No one was less worthy of the gift of your son than me, but you moved towards me. You gave your only son so that I could be brought into your family. Now we know the truth of that gospel story in our own lives, and may then we become little imitators of that story we love the family of God indiscriminately. Not without speaking truth to one another, but indiscriminately of personalities or ethnicities or any of these things that can divide us. That has to be your work. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.